If you would, please turn again in your Bibles to John chapter 7. We're going to actually read uh, the rest of the chapter. Ben read for us the first 24 verses. Uh, Now we will read together verses 25 through 52. And the effort this morning is to preach the chapter in its entirety. So please follow along as I read John chapter 7. And we'll read now verses 25 until the end of the chapter. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, and those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet." Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? He comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our prayer is that you come now and in this element of our worship, namely the consideration of your word, the preaching of it, that you would assist us and help us, that you would make this hour to be good for each one. Open up your word to us. 
Show us things in here that are necessary for our very lives, for our knowledge of you and relationship to you. Cause each one to embrace your dear son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. John 7, I understand to be something of a transitional chapter in the gospel. Uh, John 7 really provides for us something like a gauge for popular reaction to Jesus up to this point. We've been through the first six chapters, of course. This morning, I hope to look at uh, all of John 7. And uh, in John 7, Jesus is at this feast, and there are all these various reactions to Jesus and questions asked of Him and claims made about Him. We get a sense of, of where people were with respect to Jesus at this stage in His ministry. I think we'll get another gauge in John 12, where again, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, now entering the last week of His life, and there we see many others making various responses to Jesus and seeking to learn uh, more about Him and who He is. And then, of course, after John 12, uh, Jesus is in the final week of His life, and He's shut up to His disciples, no longer moving among the crowds. But here, at this point in our exposition of John's gospel, we get a gauge for where people are with respect to Jesus, at least where these Jews are with respect to Jesus. So at the start of the chapter, Jesus is in Galilee. Uh, this is probably about six months after the events of John 6. Uh, there, you may remember that the Passover was at hand, uh, one of the major Jewish feasts. And now we learn that Jesus uh, is uh, queried as to whether He will go down to the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes referred to as the Feast of Booths which is another one of the major feasts on the calendar of the Jews, one of the three major feasts. And it was a uh, ceremony, a feast that was um, especially known for uh, this ritual of um, pouring out water and that being a symbol of God's provision and God's cleansing of the people of Israel. And so Jesus is asked whether He's going to go down to this feast. And at first, it appears that Jesus is not going to go. Uh, his disciples are going, others are going, and uh, he indicates that perhaps he's not going to go. And then we learn uh, in verse 10 that he does decide to actually go, and he goes uh, privately. He ultimately does attend the feast. It's interesting to track Jesus' movements in this chapter and to see how his profile with respect to the crowds that are there at this feast in Jerusalem, how it becomes increasingly uh, public. So at the beginning of the chapter, it appears he may not even go to the feast. Then he does go, but he only goes up privately. So uh, maybe he's hidden or something like that, or he's not necessarily mingling among the crowds. And then by the middle of the chapter, we read uh, that Jesus actually begins teaching in the temple at about the middle of the feast. So he's been there for a few days. Perhaps people don't know that he's there, but now he's in the temple. So here are the crowds. Feast is going on. They hear that Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching some there. And then by the end of the chapter, by verse 37, we read that Jesus takes the most public place He could take, that on the last day of the feast, the great day, it's called, the very climax of the whole, uh, the whole feast, He stands up and makes a public declaration before the crowds. I, I take those movements of Jesus to really be the backbone of this chapter, that that there's this growing, mounting momentum in the chapter, and it's all moving toward what Jesus will say in the most public setting that he assumes in the chapter. Something that obviously seems clear from our reading of John 7 right away, 
is that Jesus is notorious among the Jews by this time. He's not an unknown figure. Lots of people have probably seen him or met him. Clearly some have witnessed some of his miracles. It could be that some who were at that feast, in fact, it's incredibly likely that many who were at that feast would have seen Jesus miraculously provide bread just in the previous chapter in John 6. So Jesus is well known among the people, but uh, you can see, as we read, various comments that people make. It seems that some have different pieces of the puzzle. There's some who maybe have true saving faith and some who maybe believe something about Jesus or some that even think Jesus might be some sort of charlatan or some sort of uh, fake or something like that. But needless to say, people are interested in Jesus. Uh, They're talking about Him. He has headline news. They're even looking for Him at the feast. We also have recorded in this chapter reactions to Jesus not only from the crowds, But also we get a sense here of how the Pharisees and the chief priests and even the officers who came to arrest Jesus, how they are reacting to him. So all of that to say, I think John 7 is a good place to sort of of pause and take stock of where people are with respect to Jesus at this point in John's gospel. So here's what I want to do uh, with our time this morning. I want to try to assess the responses to Jesus from three particular groups. Uh, the first would be the crowds themselves, the various Jews who are, who are witnessing Jesus, seeing him, talking to him. We want to assess the response, first of all, of the crowds. Secondly, the response of the Pharisees and the chief priests would be the religious leaders of the day. And then thirdly, uh, this group gets a little bit of coverage, the response of the officers. The response of the officers who are there, apparently, to arrest Jesus. So let's look at the crowds chief priests and Pharisees, and then the response of the officers. And then I'd like to consider what it is that Jesus says. So first of all, look with me at the responses of the crowds. And all I want to do here is just list the various things that the crowds are saying about him. Uh, There are 10 things I have recorded here that we have said about Jesus. First of all, in verse 12, some are saying that he is a good man. He is a good man. Of course, people would have Many reasons to say that. Jesus would have had the reputation of being an upright sort of person. He, he did conform himself to most of the standards of the Jewish law. He had also, by this point, done very great miracles and acts of compassion and kindness. And so some are concluding he must be a very good man. But then in verse 12, secondly, we read that some think that he is leading the people astray. He's leading the people astray. Perhaps these people had some awareness of what Jesus' message was, that if you come to him, uh, that he would grant salvation and eternal life. If you would believe on him, uh, he would satisfy the hungers of the human soul and the thirsts of the human heart. And some apparently believed that that was to be uh, contrary to what maybe the Jewish scriptures taught. And now there's this new message coming from this man that actually would be uh, leading people in a false direction, leading people astray. Uh, Thirdly, in verse 15, uh, some are prompted to ask after they hear Jesus speaking in the temple, they ask, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Apparently, Jesus' background and biography, his pedigree, would have been known among the crowds. This man is just a humble carpenter. Uh, We know his father and mother and his brothers and sisters, and yet here he is standing up in the temple, assuming a position of uh, sort of... Uh, uh, authoritative teaching, 
And here he is opening up the scriptures and teaching things about the Messiah who was to come and saying things about God. How could he know all this stuff? He didn't go to any of our seminaries or any of our universities. He didn't have the training that the Pharisees had. And of course, we know that all that Jesus taught, he actually heard and knew in the throne room of God. But these crowds don't know that. They say, how could this man teach these things? He's never never studied in our academies. Uh, Fourthly, in verse 20, it appears that some are seeking to uh, kill Jesus. Jesus at least makes that claim. He asks, why are you seeking to kill me? And those who are with him say, uh, who is seeking to kill you? You have a demon, which is quite a charge to make. Perhaps uh, they thought that Jesus was exaggerating the claims against him and even say, you must be demon-possessed. Who's seeking to kill you? Uh, Fifthly, in verses 25 through 26, very interesting uh, response. It appears that at this point in the feast, there's a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. Officers have perhaps been sent. Uh, There's even a warrant maybe for Jesus' execution, and and yet no one is laying hands on Jesus. And so it prompts the crowds to ask in verses 25 through 26 whether or not the authorities, maybe they believe this is the Christ. They won't touch him because they're afraid. After all, he's saying these things. This is blasphemy for any man to say. And yet here are these officers, and they're not arresting Jesus. Why aren't they doing that? Well, could it be that the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, maybe they know this is the Christ, and they're afraid to actually do it. No one's willing to pull the trigger, and so the crowds are murmuring. What could this mean? How should we interpret these actions? Uh, Sixthly, in verse 27, it is asked, when the Christ comes, or it is, excuse me, stated, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. It was a popularly held view among the Jews that the Christ would just suddenly appear and that his origins would have been unknown. The seventh, uh, the question is asked in verse 31, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? Some have seen the signs that Jesus has done and they're thinking maybe this is the Christ. Maybe we are convinced that this is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And then just a few more reactions. Eighth, in verse 40, some conclude that this really is the prophet. Verse 41, some say this is the Christ. And then there's this question in verses 41 through 42, again, about where Jesus comes from. Some apparently thought he came from Galilee. That's not the case, obviously, but some were thinking that, perhaps based on all the time that he spent in Galilee. And they think, shouldn't he come from Bethlehem? Shouldn't he be from the line of David? So all that to say, those 10 various reactions I've listed for you, all of that is to say that certainly the crowds are all over the map on Jesus. And they're just thinking all kinds of things about him as they're taking in all this teaching and they're witnessing his signs and they're hearing him interact with them. They're all over the map. Some think he's a good man. Some think he's the prophet that was promised. Some think he is actually the Christ. People are wondering what to do with his origins and with his signs and with his teaching. They're all over the map on Jesus. It's probable that very few had genuine saving faith. It's possible that many were maybe close to having genuine saving faith. But what is obvious is that there is a great deal of confusion, misunderstanding, and disagreement over who Jesus is. So that's the reaction of the crowds. Now, secondly, consider with me the reaction of the Pharisees and the chief priests. So the Pharisees and the chief priests would have been the religious leaders of the day. They would have been uh, at the highest degree of power that you could achieve 
uh, in the synagogues, in the Sanhedrin. They were uh, the most important leaders and teachers among the Jews. In verse 32, after hearing that some might be suggesting that this man actually is the Christ, verse 32 we read, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So the crowds might be going after this man. Some are suggesting that he really is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. He's done all these signs and wonders, and could it be that the crowds are going to give their allegiance to him? And so the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Notice they don't have the same reaction as the crowds. They immediately view what Jesus is saying and what he is claiming and what the crowds might be concluding as negative. So the question I think we should ask is, is why do the chief priests and the Pharisees react so negatively? Why did the religious leaders of Jesus' day not hear what Jesus was teaching in the temple and see the signs that he was doing and receive him as the Messiah, as the Christ? Why do they respond negatively to him? The answer is not exactly given, but I think we have some pieces we can put together. First of all, I think the religious leaders of Jesus' day react negatively to Jesus because he threatens their standing among the Jews. Jesus threatens their standing among the Jews. See, the Pharisees desperately wanted to maintain power and control over the crowds. We read in other places that they loved prominent places in the synagogue. We read that they loved material things and they loved the sway and authority and power they exercised over uh, the crowds. And here comes Jesus saying that He is the Christ, He is Messiah, He is Lord. You have to come to Him if you want to have a relationship with God. And see, He threatens the whole Pharisaic network. He threatens the standing that these religious leaders have among the crowds. Perhaps they recognize that if the crowds follow Jesus, they'll no longer follow them. They'll no longer follow the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the chief priests. But the second reason I think they react so negatively to Jesus, and this may be the more profound reason, is because Jesus threatens their entire view of religion. Jesus threatens their entire view of religion. This is a generalization, but for the most part, these religious leaders would have taught people that in order to be right with God, you have to conform to certain aspects of the Torah, of the law, that externally you had to keep yourself ceremonially clean and there were various rituals you had to observe and that if you remain ceremonially clean, if you obey the law of God, if you perform the appropriate rituals, you will be right with God. That was the message the Pharisees wanted to communicate. And it was that message, ironically, that really kept the Pharisees in power because they were, at least on the outside, they appeared to be clean. Uh, they obeyed the rituals. They conformed to the law. Uh, and yet Jesus comes onto the scene. He's saying that in order to be right with God, in order to have eternal life, what you must do is come and believe on God's own Son. Jesus says, you must come to me and have faith. And that if you simply come to me thirsty and come to me hungry and come to me with your darkness and with your sin and with your shame and believe on me, put your faith in me, I will save you and give you eternal life. I don't think those two views of how to be right with God can be any more disparate 
You see, the message Jesus is teaching is absolutely contrary to the message that the Pharisees would want to teach. And listen, it's not so different today. There are many professing Christians who will teach that in order to be right with God, you just have to remain sort of clean and good and nice and neat. You have to obey God's law. You have to uh, uh, come to church. You have to do certain things. And if you do those things, God will accept you. God will receive you. I would say that is the most popular and prevailing form of religion in the world today. Be a good person, at least externally. Just do the forms. Uh, Obey the law. Do the rituals. Come to church. Take the Lord's Supper in certain more ritualistic contexts. uh, it, It might be performing certain forms of penance or something like that. But then here comes Jesus, and here comes the message of the gospel, and this message is if you repent of your sin and believe upon God's own Son, you will be saved. You will be granted eternal life. It's a radically different message. Brothers and sisters, we want to be on Jesus' side, right? He teaches us, He would teach you today, say to you today, that if you come to Him forsaking your sin, repenting of your sin, looking to Him for forgiveness, to wash away your sins. And if you trust His Son for salvation, you trust Him for grace and for redemption and for forgiveness, He will grant it to you. The basis for your standing with God will not be your doing and your acting and your conformity to the law. Rather, the basis for your standing will be your faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. That's the gospel. That's the message of Christianity. No one here can be made right with God by works of the law. We believe that we are justified apart from works of the law. We are justified and made right with God purely on the free grace offered to us in Jesus Christ. We can never mistake that, never confuse that. Jesus' message is believe and you will be saved. It's only by grace that someone could be saved. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. These Pharisees think it's of works. Jesus says something different. And so they feel threatened by him. They won't go along with him. They won't believe him. Now listen, we know here, right? We talk about this. Obedience to God's law, seeking to pursue personal holiness, that's not an unimportant thing. It's not an unimportant thing. Jesus does want us to seek to conform to His law. He does want us to live righteously. We have a a, a men's book study going on right now. We're reading J.C. Ryle's book on holiness, seeking together as men to encourage one another in growing in holiness and hopefully becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Our women are studying the Sermon on the Mount, uh, seeking to take in what Jesus has taught in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and to learn better what He Uh, how he wants us to live as those who are his disciples. Holiness, obedience, tremendously important. But don't be confused. None of that ever provides the foundation for our standing with God. We are not made right with God on the basis of our holiness, on our obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, on any external conformity to the law of God. We are only made right with God through Jesus Christ, his own Son. And it's that message that threatens the Pharisees and the chief priests. A third reason that the Pharisees react so badly, negatively to Jesus is that he threatens their view of what the Messiah was to be like. 
Perhaps some of them thought that when the Messiah comes, He would establish an earthly kingdom. He would overthrow the Romans and do all kinds of things that would actually increase the power and standing and authority of the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus has already begun to talk about His death. It's known that He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He has said that He's going to offer up His flesh for the life of the world. And that's not the kind of Messiah the Pharisees want. Third response now. See the response of the crowds, the response of the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests. Thirdly, I think the response of the officers is fascinating. So let's look at the response of the officers. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, surely some of the Pharisees and chief priests, they would have been among the people at the feast. But they go to the officers and they say, arrest this man. He's committing crimes against our religion. What's interesting, I think, is that the officers never arrest him. Like they never make the arrest. We read a little earlier in verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Like he was there. The officers were perhaps standing as far as I am from Zach, but they don't lay hands on him. Why don't they do that? Well, again, two levels here we've been talking about. In the sovereign plan of God, it's because Jesus, who was fully in control of the situation, had determined that his hour had not yet come. He will be arrested. The sense in which he came to the world to be arrested, to be tried, to be crucified, and to die. But not yet. No one lays a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's on one level, the level of God's sovereignty over all things. But there's a second reason we're given, more insight that we're given. It's actually in verse 45. Apparently, after the feast, the last day, the great day, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the officers have a little conference about what just happened and what didn't happen that was supposed to happen. In verse 45, it says this, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? You had the warrant, you had the ability, where is he? Why didn't you make the arrest? We gave you clear orders, you were right there. Why didn't you arrest him? Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. They were right there. But see, they heard what Jesus said. They were transfixed by what Jesus said. So they don't make the arrest. They said, you don't understand. Yes, we were right there. We had the warrant in our pocket. But you didn't hear what he said. No one ever spoke like this man. We just couldn't do it. We just couldn't do it. So what is it that Jesus said? What is it that he said that was so compelling that, that crowds here, many of whom opposed him, certainly Pharisees and chief priests who wanted to kill him, and officers who are there with handcuffs ready to arrest him, 
why don't they do it? What is it that he said that was so powerful and compelling? And this is what I want to consider now. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say to the crowds who are confused about him? What did he say to the chief priests who hate him and want him dead? And what did he say to the officers who are there to arrest him but then fail to do so? The words are recorded in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Crowds who are confused about him, saying all sorts of irreverent and ungodly things about him, who are all over the map with respect to who Jesus is, chief priests and Pharisees who hate him and want him dead, who he knows will eventually take him into custody at his appointed time, but not yet, and then officers who are there to arrest him. Jesus stands up in front of all of them on the last and great day of the feast. He he assumes the most public profile he can possibly assume. And what is it that he says? It's interesting what he does not say. What would you say in that situation? Here he is, the Word made flesh, the living God who could turn all these people into stone if he wanted to. People saying all kinds of irreverent things about him, people who are seeking his life. What is it that Jesus says? Well, it's interesting what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, how dare you speak of me in such irreverent and ungodly ways. I am the God-man, I am the Messiah, and you are all condemned. He could have said that. He would have been right to say that. He doesn't say that. He could have said, you know what? I have borne with this generation long enough. You fickle crowds, you just don't get it. You Pharisees who are after me, you officers who are trying to, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm getting lost. I've had it with this generation. You will hear my message and have my grace no more. Would have been within his rights to do that. Thirdly, he does not simply destroy them all. He doesn't kill them. He doesn't strike them down. He doesn't call down a legion of angels to bring about judgment on the crowds that are in front of him, though he had the power to do that. He doesn't respond in any of those ways. Here are these crowds before him, and what does he choose to say? He makes one of the most wonderful offers in all the Bible. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's three things I want us to notice in this response from Jesus. Three things I want us to notice, and then we'll be done. First of all, notice the universal scope of Jesus' offer, the universal scope. He says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, whoever believes in me, anyone, whosoever, you crowds, 
you Jews, you don't think you understand what's going on, you're confused, you're wondering who I am, you feel a native thirst in your heart, if you thirst, if you believe in me, I have a promise for you, and I have eternal life to offer you. You Pharisees who want to kill me, who want my life, who want to see me destroyed, if you thirst, you can come to me and drink. You chief priests who hate me and want my life, but if you would believe, I'd have you. You officers ready to take me into custody, I'm right here. I'm right here. But see, you men who would arrest me, I say to you, if you thirst, if you come to me, you will be saved. You will have life, the universal scope. Secondly, consider with me that the free invitation is to come and drink. It's the universal scope of the invitation. Secondly, it is a free invitation to come and drink. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The promise is that thirst will be quenched. The soul will be satisfied. Delight will be had. Redemption and forgiveness will be given if you come to me and drink. Look, I've been on this point a lot over the last few weeks, but it just has to be so impressed upon us that the promise that Jesus gives to us is not just to make us right with God and to let us off the hook. He promises to satisfy the soul. He promises to quench our thirst. Those hunger pangs that we feel in our soul, those desires left unsatisfied, that impulse we feel for love and affection and safety and warmth, Jesus promises to give it to us. The Christian message is a promise of joy and happiness and delight and satisfaction. But there's more to see here, and again, this is, um, I'm probably sounding like a broken record at this point, but we should notice that in this invitation to come and drink, it's to come to Jesus. And what we're to see there is that Jesus promises not to give a drink to somebody who comes to him, but that he himself will be living water to that person. He himself is the drink. Jesus is not passing out certificates of eternal life. He's not giving cups of water to people. He's giving himself to people. We saw this last week, right? Jesus says he's the bread of life. Whoever believes on him will never hunger. He says, I am the bread of life. My flesh is the bread that I give for the life of the world. If you want to become a Christian, you don't just need to believe a set of facts about Jesus, like cerebrally like philosophically, and just agree to them. Faith in Jesus Christ is having Jesus and knowing Him. He is the drink. He is the water that satisfies the native thirsts of the souls. He's the one who quenches the parched mouth, the parched palate of the human heart. But a third thing I'd like us to see in these words from Jesus, this offer from Jesus, we've seen its universal scope, We've seen that it is a free invitation to come and drink. And thirdly, notice with me, there is the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is actually probably um, a more problematic couple of verses than it would appear at first glance. Seems like a very basic offer, but there's, there's actually some issues in these words from Jesus that are um, a little bit hard to parse, a little bit hard to understand. I'll just mention two of them, okay? The first question that people have asked is, uh, what text is Jesus quoting in verse 38? And if you're reading from the ESV, it says, as the Scripture has said, quote, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, those quotation marks aren't there in the Greek. It's possible he's paraphrasing a passage. Now, you might read that, and granted, you didn't have a week this past week like I've had where I can look all this up and study this, but you might read that and think, I guess there's an Old Testament verse somewhere that says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, and Jesus is just quoting that Old Testament verse. I can't find that verse. I don't think any such verse exists. Now, I don't think Jesus is making a direct quote. I think Jesus is paraphrasing the Scripture. After all, he, by the Holy Spirit, wrote the Scripture. He has the right to paraphrase it. But I think that's what he's doing. He's capturing an idea that's contained somewhere else in the Old Testament. But still, the question remains, what Old Testament passage is he referencing? And I'm just going to come clean and tell you I actually don't know. Just admit that up front. I don't actually know what text Jesus has in mind. If you're interested in learning more about this question, I encourage you to read uh, Don Carson's commentary on the Gospel of John, pages 325 through 328, where he recommends Nehemiah 9 as the Old Testament background. It's a compelling case, but I just don't know the answer to the question. It's somewhere. This idea that out of the heart of the person who believes on the Lord, life will flow as rivers of living water. But then the second issue, and I think probably the more relevant question for us today. What does it mean, what does John the Apostle mean in verse 39 when he says that the Spirit had not been given? You see that there? For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. How should we understand that? Literally, the words read, the Spirit was not yet. It's a literal translation. The Spirit was not yet. Now, we know Jesus cannot mean that the Holy Spirit did not exist yet. That would be to contradict earlier things we've seen in the Gospel of John, like when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. It doesn't mean the Spirit didn't exist yet. It can't mean that the Spirit wasn't yet active, like he wasn't doing anything. That would be to contradict tons of Old Testament passages that speak of the Spirit of God doing all kinds of things. So it can't be that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. It can't be that he wasn't active. It can't mean that the Spirit didn't exist in the Old Testament, because again, we see multiple references to him in the Old Testament. So what should we make of this, this statement that the Spirit had not yet been given? I think Jesus is highlighting something that is sometimes a little bit hard for us to understand. It could seem somewhat obscure, and it has to do with the differences between the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. 
I think this is an important issue for Christians to understand. And since we have it in our text, I want to try to open this up here in these few minutes. Jesus is getting at the differences between the ministry of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. There is a difference. It's not always clear, actually, what the difference is, but there is a difference. So here's what I think we can say for certain. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God the Holy Spirit is existent or alive. He exists in the Old Testament. He is distinct. That is, he's an actual person. He's not an it. He's a he. The Holy Spirit is a being. And he is a distinct being within the Godhead. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is existent. He's alive. He's distinct. He's an actual person. And he is operative. He is active. That is, he does things in the Old Testament. Sorry about that. He's active. Uh, His activity is very broad. He does actually all sorts of things. If we were to gather together all the texts that reference the Holy Spirit, but he is active, and that activity includes, but is not limited to, divine revelation. God speaks by his Spirit in the Old Testament. Creative power. You might remember the words in Genesis that the Spirit was hovering over the water, that God by His Spirit created things and brought things about. Divine revelation, creative power. Thirdly, spiritual transformation. In the Old Testament, God by His Spirit transforms people and makes them alive to God. We talked about the account of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. What did Ezekiel need to pray that the Spirit would come and give life to these dry bones. That's all going on in the Old Testament, and our text this morning doesn't deny that that was all happening, that the Spirit was existent, distinct, and operative, and that He was involved in divine revelation and creative power and spiritual transformation. But now in the New Testament, okay, God the Holy Spirit is all the same things that He was in the Old Testament. And he continues his activity of divine revelation, creative power, and spiritual transformation. That's all the same. But in the New Testament, there is a new focus to the ministry of the Spirit. There's a new focus to his ministry. In the New Testament, we are taught that the Holy Spirit will personally indwell each believer and will mediate to the believer the very presence and power of Christ. I'll say that again. In the New Testament, we are taught that the Holy Spirit will personally indwell each believer. Like you, if you are a believer, you will be personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He will live in you. And will mediate to the believer, will bring to the believer the presence and power of the risen Christ. So it's not that we get the Holy Spirit for the first time in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, but that we get Him in newer and fuller ways as believers. The Spirit's special ministry under the New Covenant is to bring the presence and power of Jesus to the Lord's people. And this is going to become abundantly clear when we get to John 14, 15, and 16. John 14, 15, and 16 includes the most concentrated material in the Bible about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
If you want to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what it is that he does, you need to know John 14, 15, and 16. There's all sorts of error about there surrounding who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. His ministry is not primarily to work us all into some sort of frenzy so that we'll speak in tongues and do miraculous healings or something like that. His primary ministry is to bring to the hearts of the believers the presence and power of the living Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. If you have a better sense today of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you and what he is willing to do for you, that's the Holy Spirit at work within you. If you know and sense Jesus better, the Holy Spirit is at work within you. John 14, verses 15 through 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, verses 25 and 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, verse 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And then John 16, verses 13 through 15, when the Spirit of truth comes, remember, As of yet, the Spirit had not yet come because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So now go back to our text. John 7, 38 and 39, let's put it together. What is Jesus promising? Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus here is promising the personal, intimate, indwelling of the Holy Spirit by which Christ would bring to bear his presence and power in the life of the believer. The Spirit is planted in the believer and the image is that he will be like a spring of water welling up to eternal life and the vision is that living water will issue forth and continually replenish the soul and the heart with the water that Christ provides by his Holy Spirit. It's like Jesus implants in you, Christian, a a spring by which your thirst will be perpetually quenched. Do you think of the Spirit that way? That God has given you a helper, a comforter, someone to bring to bear the very words and presence and power of Christ on your heart, that you might continually have your thirst quenched and satisfied. It's a wonderful promise. It's a glorious promise. You come to Jesus thirsty, And he will quench your thirst and provide you with his Holy Spirit to continually refresh and replenish you. And he will always be with you through his Spirit and will minister to you such that you will never have reason to be thirsty again. And this is what Jesus says to these fickle crowds, to these self-righteous Pharisees, 
and to these cowardly officers who won't finish the job. He says, if you thirst, you come to me and drink. Any one of you. I know all your motives. I know what brought you here today. But I'm telling you, if you would come to me, I would satisfy you. I'd cleanse you. I'd make you right. I'd give you eternal life. He says, not only that. I will give you the Holy Spirit. I will send him to you. And he will minister to you. He will help you. And he will bring cleansing and refreshment and healing to you. And he will bring to bear upon your life the presence and power of the Son of God. That's what Jesus offers to these crowds. A fountain of water issuing forth to replenish the soul. Now in closing, before we come to the Lord's table, I just want to say this. There has been sort of an underlying connection between the last three or four sermons, this idea that Jesus comes as the bread of life, that He comes as living water and as a spring of water welling up to eternal life, that He comes to satisfy hunger and He comes to quench thirst. I believe that John 4, we have the woman at the well, John 6, where Jesus promises to be the bread of life, here in John 7, where Jesus invites thirsty people to come to Him and drink. I believe that these statements from Jesus, these chapters in John's gospel, address a tremendous misunderstanding that people have about Christianity, huge misunderstandings that people have about the Christian gospel. I believe that one of the most significant things that people fail to understand about Christianity is that the call to Christ is a call to be happy. The gospel call is a call to be happy, to be satisfied. The promises of the gospel are joy and peace, and redemption, and delight, and pleasure, and satisfaction. When Jesus is before these crowds saying, come to me and drink, He's saying, I can make you well, I can heal you, I can satisfy you, I can make you eternally happy in God. That's what Christianity promises. People think that That what it is we want to say to the world is do this and do that and deny yourself and take up your cross. Well, listen, Jesus does say those things. He does tell us things we must do and we must not do. He tells us to deny ourselves. He tells us to take up our cross. But only because those things that He tells us to do actually serve our greater joy in paradise forever with God. Those sins that He calls us away from, that cross that He calls us to take up, is to combat those obstacles to actually accomplishing the purest and highest joys the human soul can accomplish. What you have to know about the Christian gospel is that Jesus is offering Himself to you to satisfy the human soul in the deepest way that anything can satisfy the human soul. There are thirsts and hungers in your heart that nothing else in this world can satisfy. There are empty holes in your heart 
that no sin, no pleasure, no thing, no relationship, no person can fill. Jesus is saying, only I can. The object of the gospel is your eternal happiness and well-being. Jesus is after in the preaching of the gospel, and I am after in the preaching of the gospel, the happiness of your never-dying soul. I'm after your delight, after your pleasure, after your happiness in Jesus Christ, because he is living water that satisfies the soul. He is the bread of life that satisfies human hunger. He is the solution to all of our wants and our needs and our desires and the the, the deepest cravings we feel in our hearts. That is what Jesus is trying to say to these crowds. Of all that makes you thirsty, all that stuff, I'm the solution to that thirst. You can come to me and drink you will have living water. You come to me, all you who hunger, and I'll give you bread that endures to everlasting life. And you will be eternally happy. The Christian message is all about good things. It's all about good things. It is about peace and joy and happiness and delight. You have to know this about Christianity. This is what we're offering. This is what Jesus calls us to. Eternal happiness and eternal life in paradise forever with God. And to have it all, he calls us to one thing. Come to me. Come to me and drink. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have never called on anyone, any soul. You have never called us, and you will never call anyone in the future to a life of austerity and want and bitterness. You call us into good things. You call us into everlasting life. You call us out of our sorrow and our sin and our bondage and our darkness. You call us into light and life and cleansing and healing. You call us into hope and to peace and to joy and to pleasures at your right hand forevermore. We know that now we're not able to taste of all of those pleasures to the full, but we can have the beginnings of them in this life by coming to your Son, the Lord Jesus, and believing on Him. And we long for the day when we will fully partake of those joys forevermore. But we pray that you would enable each soul to partake of eternal life, even now, even this day. pray in Jesus' name, amen.